Thank you, Bert. Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to 2 uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. New series we're beginning. We finished off uh, Doctrine of Canonicity. Now we're going to do a seven-part series on the Doctrine of Inspiration, which is along with uh, canonicity and also inerrancy, which we're going to do afterwards in the history of the English Bible, belongs to the category of doctrine called uh, bibliology, the study of the Bible. So we're going to start off with an introduction and a definition tonight with regards to the subject of the doctrine of inspiration. And of course, the doctrine of inspiration is tied to canonicity, as you'll see. So uh, it should be at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, as we normally do, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to see if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But God has given us 1 John 1, 9, which states, If we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. So that just restores us to fellowship. We need to stay in fellowship. We do that by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us to the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16. We're also uh, letting the Word of Christ really dwell in our souls. So... Is there anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you? Do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's a great honor and privilege that we stand before you to study your almighty word, to learn of your plan for our lives, to become like your son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, to learn about who and what you are and, who and what you've done for us in eternity past, are doing for us now and will do for us in the future through the Son and the Spirit. We thank you for the great work that you've accomplished for us through your Son and also the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and from regeneration to resurrection. We pray the Spirit do a mighty work to all of us here this evening. And Father, we just uh, we thank you, for first of all, for um, the logistical grace blessings that you've given to us, uh, food, shelter, and clothing, uh, the, the jobs that we have, the homes that we live in, the salaries, the bodies that we have, the minds that we have, and of course, uh, this uh, place, the fellowship, this building, and the, the members of the body of Christ that are assembled here this evening, and those who are not here this evening that are uh, part of this local assembly. We just thank you, Father, for each and every one of them. And Father, we just lift up our, our, our uh, political leaders, we lift up our executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments and military, uh, also those in paramilitary organizations like the police and, and FBI and undercover and uh, in, in covert operations. We pray for them. We pray you give our military political leaders the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country and raise up people who have positive volition or establishment principles in these areas of our government, and uh, we just uh, thank you again for each and every one of them. Father, we just pray tonight that you'd help me to bring forth your full counsel today with regards to the introduction to this subject, very important subject of inspiration, and uh, I pray you would help me to bring forth accurate, accurately and carefully, uh, with reverence and respect for your word, uh, this subject. And I just pray that uh, as a result, your people will receive their necessary spiritual nourishment. And I also pray that by the power of the Spirit, your people will be able to learn, understand, to concentrate, 
and to make application of what they're being taught and uh, get a greater love and appreciation for the completed canon of scripture that we have in front of us and these English translations that we have. We just thank you, Father, uh, for uh, your word, uh, our daily bread, the word of God. Man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Father, we pray for this service in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right, today's the first hour of the Doctrine of uh, Inspiration. As I said before the opening prayer, we'll be noting an introduction and definition uh, to this subject. I'll be quoting several different uh, Bible scholars with regards to this particular definition because it's very, very important, and I'll give you my uh, definition as well as some other very important points related to this definition of the Doctrine of Inspiration. As I said before, this will be a seven-hour series, so it won't be as long as canonicity. And then following this, we'll be doing the doctrine of inerrancy, which is very important as well, because all these subjects, the uh, canonicity, inspiration, inerrancy, are really being attacked like never before in America today. And of course, why wouldn't else, what else would the devil do? He's always attacked God's word from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he did. When he uh, called in, a, when he went to Eve and got Eve to doubt what God had said in his word, and he actually contradicted uh, God, the devil did. And so uh, this, is the, this is the plan. It's always to attack the word of God is Satan's plan. He's always had that. Uh, his number one priority is to attack God's word, to undermine it, do whatever he can. And so the term inspiration, like Trinity, uh, is not a biblical word, but uh, it does summarize, the term inspiration does summarize some important facets of biblical truth. Now, the theological idea of inspiration presupposes there's a personal God. Think about that. The doctrine of inspiration, uh, it actually presupposes there's a personal God with a mind and a sovereign will. So the Christian's conviction regarding the inspiration of the Bible is based upon the Bible's own testimony. The Bible says for itself that it's inspired by God. All throughout Scripture, it does that. Uh, you can, it's all, the prophets, thus saith the Lord. And then you hear in like Revelation 2 and 3, the Spirit says to the churches. And this is, you see in, in other phrases throughout the world, and God coming out and saying that I spoke to the prophet. doesn't matter who it was, the prophet was, or the greatest of the prophets, Jesus Christ, the God-man. God is, God's word is always asserted that it is, it is the words of God, the very words of God. So the Christian's conviction, our Christian, biblical Christianity, those who believe in the Bible and consider it the final authority for rule and practice, we believe that the, our conviction is that the inspiration of the Bible is based upon the Bible's own testimony, or in other words, it's based upon explicit assertions uh, in, in, in Scripture. So uh, one of those assertions is found in a very famous passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, but I got you at verse 1 of that chapter, so we get what he says in verses 16 and 17 in its proper context. And there'll be other passages in this study that we'll be going to with related to this subject. So uh, Paul writes the second, uh, to Timothy. It's his second letter. Uh, he, is, uh, he is actually, when he writes this, he's in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. In fact, you can go to Rome today and you'll see what this place was. The archaeology is, and it's a pretty, pretty d uh, nasty place. Uh, his first Roman imprisonment when he wrote Ephesians, uh, Philippians, uh, Philemon, and Colossians, that was uh, under house arrest. He had his own rented quarters, according to Acts 28. He was chained to a Roman soldier, and he mentions this in, in the, these prison epistles. And, uh, and so he was under house arrest, and he was awaiting his appeal for, for, before Caesar. So he had his own rented quarters. He, had a, he was in a nice place. 
However, the second Timothy, he's not in a nice place. In fact, this is the place he is awaiting his, uh, his, uh, his execution at the hands of Nero. He got decapitated at the hands of Nero's, uh, Nero. And so this is his final words. This, this is probably around 67, 68 AD. So what he has to say in this letter is very, very important. Uh, it's the last words of this man to his, his trusted friend and someone he, uh, he, he was a mentor to, Timothy. So it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but mark this. There'll be terrible times in the last days. Now, those who studied Jude with me, <laughs> you're all here. Uh, the last days began with the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ and ascension and session at the right hand of the Father. We are in the last days. We saw that with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So he's talking about the time that we're living in now, and uh, which ends with the second advent of Christ. Now, uh, this section he's going to read, we're going to read in the, first, in the next nine verses, is talking about actually the apostasy in the church during the last days. So it says, people will be lovers of themselves. Now he's going to talk about believers here. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, (laughs) rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. They're religious. Uh, Have nothing to do with such people. And it's interesting that he says that. He would never say that, Paul would never say that to, uh, about the church because he has no authority. Uh, he would never say that to the unbelievers because he has no authority over an unbeliever. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He does sell, tell Christians to stay away from apostate Christians who are living in reversionism, apostasy. And so he will tell, you to stay, he will tell us through church discipline to stay away from such people. So that's the first indication he's talking about believers in the last day and their bad behavior. They're they're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved mind who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Now, notice he goes into their homes of, of uh, Christians. And so that means that he was a, they were Christian pastors. And they would, an unbeliever is not going to be going into a home to teach in a Christian home. A believer is going to be going into a home. A Christian teacher is going into a home to teach believers. So it says in verse 9, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone especially at the Bema seat, they'll lose rewards. Now he says in verse 10, you, however, in contrast to these Christians in the last days who are living in reversionism, apostasy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endure. He's looking retrospectively at his life. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Note that. You will be persecuted. While not all the time, but you will at times be persecuted. While evildoers, this will happen while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. You got conviction because you know those from whom you learned it like himself, and how, how from infancy you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He knew it through his, his mother and his grandmother. We know that. Now, look what he says in verse 16. All Scripture 
is God breathed. Great translation by the NIV. That because the word uh, nustos uh, is translated correctly, God breathed there. It literally means, as we'll see, God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, we see that the term inspiration, like Trinity, as I said before, is not a biblical word, but does summarize some important facets of biblical truth. The theological idea, as I mentioned a few moments ago, of inspiration presupposes there's a personal God with a mind and a sovereign will. And the Christian's conviction, as I also noted, regarding the inspiration of the Bible is based upon the Bible's own testimony. And in other words, it's based upon the explicit, explicit uh, assertions in Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. J. Hampton Keithley III, a man who, had a, 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 who was one of the biggest influences in my life uh, in, uh, as far as uh, Bible doctrine and the Word of God. He was a pastor out in North Dakota. Never met him, I, but I, you can download his, uh, his material free of charge like you do from our website, Bible.org. His son's still around, J. Hampton Keithley IV, but J. Hampton Keithley III was out in North Dakota. And uh, so uh, he was a great teacher, and he has the following uh, quote. He says, as special revelation is God's communication to man of the truth, he must know in order to be properly related to God. So inspiration deals with the preservation of that revelation so that what was received from God was accurately transmitted to others beyond the original recipient. He then goes on to say, in revelation, we have the vertical uh, reception of God's truth. While in inspiration, we have the horizontal communication of that revelation accurately to others. Then he says the question is how can we be sure the Bible is God's revelation to man and not merely the product of human ingenuity or merely human opinion? And then he says, lastly, if what God revealed has not been accurately recorded, then that record is subject to question. The doctrine of inspiration answers the question, that question and guarantees the accuracy of the Bible as God's special revelation. So Webster's, they define inspiration as the following, as a divine influence or action on a person, believed to qualify him to receive and communicate sacred revelation, the action or power of moving the intellect or emotions. Uh, so this is very important because we're going to talk about inspiration and, uh, and related to uh, as God from his perspective and, me, and, the, and the human authors of scripture. So again, Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary defines the word inspiration as a divine influence or action on a person believed to qualify him to receive and communicate sacred revelation. It's the action or power of moving the intellect or emotions. So they also state, that the word inspire, the verb inspire, means to influence, move, or guide by divine or supernatural inspiration. So this leads to, uh, leads to my definition of the doctrine of inspiration, which I will explain to you for the rest of the evening through some other authors and what they have to say, which who are in agreement with mine. So I have this as a definition. The doctrine of inspiration contends. I, one of the things is uh, I remember when I went for my ordination uh, with Pastor Jim Ricard, uh, we had the written examination, which was kind of funny because 
initially I was going to be, I wanted to be ordained by the colonel. And I had, I knew what the, the written test was because Bob took it because he was ordained by it, my pastor. So I got it and uh, I actually aced it, but they, I never heard back from the, the colonel's people. So I did it through Bob and I aced the written examination. And then I had, you had to have the oral examination before pastors, and there was, uh, there was Carl, Dr. Carl D. Moranville was there, uh, deacons, it was different people. And so I had it before the whole, you know, the church and other people wanted to go, and it was a public uh, thing, uh, written, a oral examination. So I remember one of the th questions was about the doctrine of inspiration. So I gave my inspiration, I, and, I, and I had that memorized pretty well and so I was able to knock it off and explain it exp you know explain it to uh, the uh, the board there so they say uh, so my doctrine of uh, inspiration goes as follows it's not much different than a lot of other guys that you'll see it's this God the Holy Spirit the doctrine of inspiration contends that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human authors of scripture that without destroying their individuality their literary style their personal interest their vocabulary God's complete and connected thought towards man was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture. Not the King James. I love the King James only crowd, which says the King James only translation. They crack me up and say, well, what were they doing uh, before the King James in 1611 came around? What were they doing then? How do you, can you you'd say they try to apply things that uh, pertain to the original language to the King James, which is a translation in 1611. And so they, they, the King James is the only accurate translation. The others, the modern translations, are the product of the devil, which is absolutely ignorant, quite frankly, because there are a lot of great men and women that worked on these translations by committee, and they're uh, top-notch scholars. And let me tell you something. The other thing is the King James uh, uh, translators, in their preface, in the original preface, which if you can find, is they were looking forward to the day that we have today. We have all these uh, a, pl a plethora of translations, English translations. It's phenomenal what we have today. We're really blessed from that perspective. But uh, we see that, uh, the, you know, so this uh, definition uh, blows the King James out of the only crowd out of the water because uh, this pertains, the doctrine of inspiration only pertains to the original languages of Scripture. Uh, for those who don't know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and portions of it were in Aramaic. Like there's a, from Daniel chapter two through seven, Aramaic. It's in Aramaic, and then Esther's got some uh, Aramaic. So uh, there's different parts, a, very, a few portions that are Aramaic, but the rest is Hebrew. And of course, the New Testament is in Koine Greek. So let's back it up again with that definition. The doctrine of inspiration contends that God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human authors of Scripture that without destroying their individuality, he didn't change, they, they could be who they are. God is, you know, the great thing about being in the body of Christ is we're like each other, but we're still individuals. We retain our individuality. We don't, we're not cookie-cutted. You know, we don't, we're not, you know, created in the image of uh, Pastor Bill or any other passage, a pastor. We're individuals. And the writers of Scripture were individuals, and they had their own vocabulary. They had their own literary style and their own personal interests. So if you read Paul, I've done a lot of Paul's writing, and you compare it to John's writing. I've done much uh, the, the three epistles of John. 
John's got a simpler vocabulary. And it's, in fact, when you go to the, when you study Greek and you're starting out, you start off in First John. You read the Gospel, the Second, Third John, because his vocabulary is simpler. But when you go to Paul, you don't want to start off with Romans if you're in your first class of Greek, uh, your first year of Greek. You don't want to study, you know, try to learn, uh, read through Romans. It's a lot more difficult. So, so the so they had they had their own vocabulary, and God didn't have to change that to get through uh, uh, His complete. Uh, will to mankind and perfect accuracy. Uh, he created language. Uh, he's the one who, you know, the, with, the, with the, the Tower of Babel. We'll go back to the, uh, uh, Genesis. And uh, great, uh, I read a great book that Henry gave me and uh, on, on that. The guy did a fantastic job. But the languages all came from, started with God. You know, he gave man his mouth, his speech, his mind. And so, of course, you, it doesn't matter what, a, what style of vocabulary you have, a big vocabulary, you know, like a, a college professor, or you have a, 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 a vocabulary of somebody who's not well educated, uh, God can complete, communicate. In fact, the word, the idea of the word of God, Jesus Christ, the word of God, uh, conveys that idea of being able to communicate. So the doctrine of con uh, inspiration contends that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human authors of Scripture that without destroying their individuality, their literary style, their personal interests and their vocabulary. We see that God's complete and connected thought towards mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy. No mistakes, that's connected to inerrancy. And it was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture. My translation of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 goes as follows. Each and every portion of Scripture does possess as an eternal spiritual truth. That phrase, an eternal spiritual truth, is bringing out the gnomic present that's in the verb there, which talks about a spiritual axiom. It's true all the time. It's an eternal truth. So each, this is an eternal truth about the Scriptures. Each and every portion of Scripture does possess as an eternal spiritual truth the characteristic of being God-breathed. Then it says, consequently, it does possess as an eternal spiritual truth the characteristic of being useful for teaching, for conviction, for correction, for training, which is related to righteousness. In other words, the spiritual life. So all these things that I'm supposed to do as a pastor, I'm to teach you, and in, uh, it, the Scriptures are for teaching, for convicting people of sin, and also for correcting people, and for training them with regards to the spiritual life. And he talks about this a metaphor for the spiritual life there is righteousness there, experiencing the righteousness of God, which is fulfilling your obligation to both God and mankind, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And as far as the Christian community is concerned, to love them as Christ loves. That's experiencing the righteousness of God. Righteousness means you're doing right by God, fulfilling your obligations to him and doing right by your fellow human being. And so uh, we see that uh, uh, in verse 17, the purpose of all this is that the person belonging to God, uh, where God's possession, would possess the characteristic of being competent, specifically by equipping for every kind of action which is divine good and quality and character. In other words, when we get the scriptures, receive the scriptures by faith, and we obey what the Scripture is teaching us, we're going to produce actions which are divine good in quality and character. And those actions, because they're motivated by what the Spirit teaches us in the Scripture, are going to be rewarded to the Bema Seat. That's why it's so important, everything, that's why we emphasize, that's why Pastor Peak, before me, and every, anybody who's worth his salt, 
Every pastor who knows and worth his salt is going to emphasize the scripture because from the scriptures, everything pivots off it. You can't give with proper motivation, serve with proper motivation. You can't be a, have an impact or an invisible hero. You can't pray the way you need to pray if you don't have any understanding of the scriptures. Everything starts off with the scriptures. That's if you read Acts 2, 42 through 47, right after the day of Pentecost, all these 3,000 souls got saved, and now Peter and the other apostles are discipling these new Jewish Christians. And what do they do? They emphasize, first of all, the apostles' teaching, was in spirit, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's now found in our New Testament. So this, we emphasize the scriptures because everything pivots off that. And please remember this. Don't forget the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Word of God is alive and powerful, but who inspired the Word of God to the Scriptures? Who, who inspired this book through the human authors of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit speaks to us about the Father's will for our lives, which is to become like Jesus Christ. It, the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, speaks of the Father's will for our lives to become like Christ, and also the consequences of not executing that will, loss of rewards, and also the consequences of doing that will, Rewards at the Bama seat. It reveals to us who God is and what he's done for us in the past and, and, to, and also what he's done for us in time through both the Son and the Spirit and what he's going to do for us in the future. These are all things the Holy Spirit tells us in Scripture, reveals to us in Scripture. And so the Scriptures, each portion of Scripture, as I said in my translation, each portion of Scripture is does possess as an eternal spiritual truth the characteristic of being God-breathed. The Word of God is the words of God. It's a living book. So here's the thing. When you, when you read this book in your own sanctified time along with God, prayerful study of the Word of God, or you're in the public assembly listening to the Word of God, God is speaking. Now, if the pastor is misinterpreting passages all over the place and is t teaching false doctrine, of course the Spirit's not speaking to him. But if the man's sticking to the word of God, sound doctrine, and he's going to bring forth what the, the Spirit's going to use him to bring forth what God is requiring of us and speaking to us, to God himself. That's very, very important. So God could use a path. If he could use Peter, James, and John, and Isaiah, and Daniel to write scripture, he can use pastors and, uh, to, and evangelists, and, and, the, and uh, in each uh, all those who are not pastors in the body of Christ to, uh, to, uh, to uh, communicate God's word, to share God's word. God can use us. God's being very gracious and generous uh, in, in allowing us to take part in his great endeavor to bring his kingdom on the earth. And so, uh, the, the consequently, we see in my, my translation of 2 Timothy 3.16, this, each portion of scripture does possess as an eternal spiritual truth the characteristic of being useful for teaching, for conviction, for correction, for training, which is related to righteousness, experiencing the righteousness of God. Verse 17, the purpose of which is that the person belonging to God, you and I, would possess the characteristic of being competent, competent with regards to the spiritual life. When somebody works on your, uh, your plumbing, you hope that they're competent, or works on your car, you hope that they're competent. You're taking, the play, you're taking your car to a mechanic because you think he's competent in taking care of something. Well, you and I as Christians should be competent in the Word of God. Each one of us can be competent in the Word of God. All it takes is a little effort and a little discipline and, and, and perseverance, and we can be competent, and God can use us mightily if we're competent in the Scriptures. And then it goes on to say, specifically by equipping for every kind of action, 
which is divine good in quality and character. So the original languages of Scripture contain the very words of God. Isn't that exciting? When you pick up your Bible, you're reading the very words of God. And so therefore, that means the implication of that is that the Scriptures bear the authority of divine authorship. God is expressing his authority through the scriptures. That's why I said what goes on in Roman Catholicism in the last uh, you know, last uh, thousand years, it wasn't like this early on with the Roman Catholic Church when you had people like Jerome, the great scholars who had a respect for God's word. Now the Pope is the final authority in interpreting the scriptures. No, he's not. The Holy Spirit is. He's the, teacher, the true teacher and mentor of the believer and dwells the believer to give insight into the scriptures and, and to interpret, uh, help us understand the scriptures and interpret and to apply it. Not the, not the Pope. In fact, that was the whole thing with the Reformation and Protestantism. And that's why Luther and Calvin came in. No, the final authority is not Rome. The final authority is the scriptures. No, the, Holy, the, the Pope is not the only one who can interpret the scriptures like I was told. No. And, or the priest. No, we're all royal priests, the Bible says. You believe in Jesus Christ, you're a royal priest, and you represent yourself before God, and you have the Spirit, and you're able to understand Scripture for yourself. And that's why when, they, when we do the history of the English Bible, men like Tyndale and Wycliffe, they, they sacrificed their lives. They were they contracts put on them by the popes to keep these guys silent because those guys wanted to get the Bible into the plowboy's hand. They wanted to get into the, into the, the, the lay people's fan, people, uh, hands, people in the pews, so they'd realize what was going on that was, uh, was inaccurate and heretical in the Christian ch- in the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't want that, but it got out anyways. You can't imprison God's word. That's what Paul said to Timothy, did he not? Yes. So the, the original languages of Scripture contain the very words of God and therefore bear the authority of divine authorship. That's why the pastor who starts teaching false doctrine, or he's misinterpreting scripture, he's not, he's not, he's not, he does not, he's not operating in the authority that God delegated to him. And the authority resides in the Bible. Once he deviates from the scriptures, you are not required to listen to him. I wouldn't. The minute he goes off flying off on, on a tangent, that's why I always said, with Wenstrom Bionis, it's very back from the beginning. That's why I give chapter and verse, I explain things. You don't have to accept just because I'm up here teaching. You don't, you use your mind in thinking, and I give you chapter and verse, and you check me out. Because I want you to understand why you believe what you believe. Because it's not just what Bill says or any pastor says, it's what the Holy Spirit's saying. And if he's not t- communicating it right or inaccurately, why should you accept what he has to say? This ain't the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's very important that you know that. And that's why I, get, I want you... I love when people ask me questions. I have no problem with people asking questions. I get questions all the time. I get questions through email, through the various things, uh, websites that we have with, uh, with my stuff on it, and they ask questions. I, I love that. And so that's what I'm here for. Jesus answered questions. You know, the, I love with the, the, the show, The Chosen. It shows Jesus answering questions of his disciples. And, you know, it, you know they're asking, okay, how about this? And like, I love that that they do that. Because that's, that's what a disciple and a rabbi would do. When a rabbi had his disciples, they would be listening to his teaching, watching his behavior, seeing him putting it into practice, and they would ask him questions. That was the rabbinical method. And Jesus didn't deviate from that. That was a sound method. So the pastor, he, his authority is in the word of God. 
Okay, the minute you hear the pastor start talking politics or some social program, which you're seeing in America today, in so-called evangelical or even doctrinal churches, churches, they're not operating in the authority that God has given them to teach his word. They, he gave them the authority to teach his word and not sit there and spout out their political views. Now, his political views might be right, but he's wrong because he's on God's time and you've got to communicate the word of God, sound doctrine to, you, to the, the body of Christ and not your political views. We're not getting that in this country because these guys want to have the packed house and they want to have people continue to have the offerings high up there. They don't dare teach a book like Romans. They don't dare teach the doctrine of inspiration. They don't dare do it. And they're going to have to give an account. A man named Linsell, a, 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 a scholar, he says the following. He says, the inspiration is a great definition. He says, inspiration carries with it the divine authority of God so that scripture is binding upon the mind and heart, conscience, as the only rule of faith and practice for the believer. He then says, in its authority, the scripture stands above men creeds and the church itself all of them are subject to scripture including the pastor all of them are subject to scripture and any authority that any one of them may exert is valid insofar as it can be supported from scripture end of quote just what I said from a different perspective probably much more I think much more articulate than I just said it that's exactly a great great point by Linsell very very important it's so, look what he says. In its authority, Scripture stands above men, creeds, and the church. Hey, the, the, you know, you hear me talk about the early church fathers. I don't agree with everything in the early church fathers say. A lot of there are times that they deviated from what the Scripture says. They weren't perfect, just like people in my time are not perfect, and pastors not uh, 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 accurate sometimes in my in my era. You know, so, they, so it's not the, you know, just because an early church father said something doesn't mean I said, okay, I believe it, carte blanche. No, it's got to agree with scripture. That goes for anything in everyone, in anybody's teaching. And too many times I see people, you know, they, they're, they're listening to certain guys. That's how they get involved in cults. The, you know, I remember one time there's a guy named Herbert W. Armstrong. You know, some of you remember who, who he was. I, a friend of mine who led me to the Lord started getting listening to him, and he was basically into the law and the Sabbath and all that. I remember, so you Sabbath, you have Saturday, you can't do anything, right? Well, Saturday was a big time because we're, we're playing in our bands and everything. So it was a real crisis for us, you know? <laughs> well, really, I don't really want to go. I want to I be able to play, you know, Saturday night because I have a big gig, you know? And my girlfriend won't be too happy if I don't show up uh, for the date or whatever. So it was a big thing. Then out of heaven... The, the, the clouds parted and J. Vernon McGee came on the radio and he was like, you're not uh, to, to keep the law and the Sabbath. That's for Israel. You know, you're, you're, you're not uh, justified by the works of the law, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's like, hey, praise God. Saturday night we can go out and play and jam away with our bands. You know, forget about that Sabbath. We're not Jews, we're Orthodox Jews. And so, uh, but uh, he came out, Herbert W. Armstrong, and he rejected the Trinity. He said the Trinity is a force, not a person. The Holy Spirit is not a, a, a person, he's a force. So he rejected the Trinity. So people will go in for that kind of cult stuff, but if they knew, see, I had enough, I just had barely enough doctrine to know that the Holy Spirit's a person, he's not a force. You know, the personal pronouns and everything about, that Jesus uses of him in John 15, 16, 17. So 
I had just enough doctrine to reject that. So there are things like that. But people, they, they, get, they fall into, uh, you know, um, what do you call it, uh, funny interpretations of certain things in the Bible. And next thing you know, but people, if they had, if they, if they had understood the authority of Scripture and that a man's teaching is not to be accepted if it doesn't agree with Scripture. And any, listen, any guy who says it's my way or the highway, okay, watch out. Those guys are dangerous. You know, I say, check out what I say, okay? And if you don't agree with it, you have a right to disagree with me. End of discussion. And, it, and it, so you don't have to, not, not everybody's going to have the same convictions I have, okay? So eventually you might come to the same conviction I have. Now, there's certain things, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, we have conviction of. The Trinity, justification by faith, rebound, stuff like that. So we, there's many things that we have a conviction. But there's certain things like certain interpretations. You might say, oh, I don't know about that, Bill. That's okay. If there are any questions, if I can help you, I'll help you with an interpretation. No big deal. So some guys, they don't allow you to disagree with their interpretation. I've had to deal with that in the past. So well, he says, uh, Linzel says, it's in its authority, Scripture stands above men, creeds, and the church itself. All of them are subject to Scripture, and any authority that any one of them may exert is valid insofar as it can be supported from Scripture. So consequently, that was the end of the quote, consequently, there are three reasonable suppositions from this doctrine of inspiration, this definition I gave you. One, since God is a person, perfect, eternal, infinite, and just, he will always have a message to give. And he will always reveal it so it could be understood by any believer. The Bi- there, are there things in the Bible that are difficult? Oh, yeah. But really, the, 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 whole, the message of the Bible is fairly easy to understand. It really is. You know, God wasn't giving the scriptures to, 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 to just scholars, okay? He wanted everybody with any type of intellect to, to understand it. The book. Now, are there things in the Bible that are difficult? Yes, but they're not the essentials of the Christian faith most of the time. Justification faith, it's easy. You say it through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Rebound, if you want to get back in fellowship with God, you confess the sin. Okay, You want to be filled with the Spirit, you have to rebound, and you have to obey what the Word is God saying. It's simple stuff. It doesn't, it's not rocket science. It has to be that way. Okay? But there are things that are very, very difficult. If you really, really dig it, dig it, dig it, like a, like a pastor or a scholar does, but it's not going to, they're not essential things here that we're talking about. So the first supposition, again, with regards to that definition of the doctrine of inspiration, is since God is a person, perfect, eternal, infinite, and just, he will always have a message to give, and he will always reveal it so it could be understood by any believer. Number two, the divine record and revelation will be given in accurate terms. Accuracy and inerrancy. There's no errors in the original language of Scripture. In other words, whatever... Here's my definition of inerrancy. We're going to do this in the future, this doctrine. But here's my definition on the board from my article on it. The doctrine of, of the inerrancy of Scripture means that in its original autographs, the Bible contains no mistakes. In the original languages in which it was written... It's absolutely infallible, without error, in other words. This has been the position of all the confessions of the great evangelical churches down through the years. Inerrancy means that the Bible, in its original autographs, is entirely true, and this is important, in all that it affirms about something, 
regardless of the subject matter and does not contain any false affirmations. So the affirmations of Scripture are true. Whatever it affirms about something, they're true and fallible. And then the original autographs, I say, in my article here, are inerrant because they're inspired by God, obviously. Consequently, the Bible, in its original autographs, bears the authority of God himself and are the ultimate authority for the Christian. So, with my second supposition, the divine record and revelation will be given in accurate terms, accuracy and inerrancy. And number three, the third supposition, presupposition, the text of this record will be preserved in its purity by God himself and will therefore be indestructible. My words shall never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall never pass away. God sees to that. Thus, one can say that the Bible in its original languages is the exact record, the mind and will of God. And so therefore, inspiration guarantees three major things at least. There are many others I'm sure I could give you. The accuracy, it guarantees the accuracy of, like, say for instance, Satan's lies and the way that they were phrased, okay? So when the Bible says Satan says this, that's exactly what you, you, you need to hear. It's the truth. It's absolute, okay? He's, he, it, if, when it affirms what Satan says there in Genesis 3, that's what he said. So at inspiration, for example, guarantees the accuracy of Satan's lies and that the way they, they were phrased by the devil. Number two, it guarantees the way people committed their sins, like King David with Bathsheba, committing adultery with her, and then having her husband, Uriah, uh, trying to get him drunk to go in to have sex with her, but he had such integrity, he said, no, I'm going into my wife when the, when the rest of my fellow brothers in arms are not, they're at the battlefield, I'm not going to do that. So David uh, basically got him drunk, tried to get, do that. But eventually he had to go and, with a conspiracy with his commander, Joab, and, and, and get him in the thickest part of the battle, and he was killed. So God records that whole thing for us about David. And so when it, the inspiration guarantees the way David committed those sins. Number three, anything that is not related to the plan of God and outside the plan of God is recorded for a purpose and for a reason. Now, there's a, 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 a thing called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I want to give you a, 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 a quote from, which is excellent. And uh, it's one of the biggest state, one of the biggest things that ever came out of the 20th century. They did a great job. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and it was produced at an international summit conference of evangelical leaders held at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Chicago in the fall of 1978. This congress, this congress was sponsored by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. The Chicago Statement was signed by nearly 300 noted evangelical scholars, including James Boyce, Norman Geisler, John Kirshner, Carl Henry, Kenneth Cancer, Harold Linsell, which I quoted from, John Warwick Montgomery, Roger Nicole, J.I. Packer, uh, Robert Prius, Earl Rademacher, Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul, and John Wenham. Now, some of those guys, like R.C. Sproul, I don't agree with everything he has to say, but they were agreement about inspiration and errancy. And they, this was a big thing because these inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures, it was being attacked even back then. And they felt it was absolutely critical that we all get together and, and talk about this and, 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 and state what the evangelical church, the Protestant church, churches like you and I, doctrinal churches, what we believe. So I'm quoting from them now. Uh, they say about uh, 
the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, they say that the following. They state that, number one, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge, Holy Spirit, they say, Holy Scripture, they say, is God's witness to himself. Number two, they say that Holy, they affirm that Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms. Now let me stop there. It, it makes the, they make the point that the Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. So when it talks about homosexuality, that it's abomination, it's right on the button. When it talks about marriage or adultery, whatever it is, it's right on the button. When it talks about sin, alcoholism, whatever type of sin you want to, it, it is right on the button. Okay? You can't, you know, forget about psychologists and psychology and all that stuff. What first time, you know, there's a place and time for it, okay? But at the end of the day, it's what God's word says. He's the creator of the mind, okay? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Only God. And the mind, the human mind, was designed to run on truth, not lies. And that's why we have so many mental health problems today. So, whatever the word God, you know, when the God, when the Bible talks about something, it's right on the button. It's true in everything it talk, when it talks about a certain subject. It's right on the button. You should listen to what the Word of God says. Number three. Oh, well, let me back up again connected to this second point of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. They say again, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his Holy Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that affirms. And then they say, it's to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, they also affirm, you don't want to see my, what do you call it thing, um, my um, spyware. The Holy Spirit, number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness, it's very important, and opens our minds to understand its meaning. Every time you go into the Scriptures to study it, I do it all the time. I can't, I won't even bother trying. I absolutely do this every time. I pray, God, open my eyes. Help me to see wonderful things in your word. And he will. He will. Remember James 1.5, ask for wisdom. He's going to give it to you. But if you doubt, as James says, you're a double-minded person. So he, you know, and also here, here's the thing. He's not going to pour everything into your head in a 24-hour period or one sitting down for two hours. The great saints who love God's word made a big impact for God. It's a lifetime endeavor. You never arrive. God's word is eternal. How could you ever arrive? That's the great thing about it. You know, one of the greatest things about it. But you need to understand the Holy Spirit's there to help you in me. Okay? He's there to help you. And so don't be... I have people that are trying to... Um, you know, they want to, you know, they, oh, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that articulate, or I'm not that smart, or they, forget about that. You got, a, you got an IQ over room temperature, you heard me say. That's what, the, I got that from the colonel. 
You can understand it. You can do something with it. God can use you. Okay? So stop thinking about intellectual terms. You know, there are people who are smart. Okay? That's great. But not everybody is super smart. Okay? So just relax. Holy Spirit's there to help you. If you could, you could have an IQ of room temperature, the colonel used to say, you have the Holy Spirit. And you could, you could be smarter than the most uh, brilliant person in the, in, in the cosmic system today. You blow them away. Because you have the mind and thinking of the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father. Number four. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy says the, uh, with exposition says the following. Being holy, about the scripture, being holy and verbally God-given, scripture is without error or fault and it's all it's teaching. No less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of the world, of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to save God's saving grace in individual lives. And then number five, lastly, they say the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own and such lapses being serious loss to both the individual and the church. End of quote. Dr. Charles Ryrie, he says, he defines inspiration as God's superintendence of the human authors, so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man and the words of the original autographs. And then Ryrie says, the great theologian who passed away not too long ago, he says, several fat features of the definition are worth emphasizing, he says. One, God superintended but did not dictate the material. I may interject something. There are portions of scripture that he dictated to Moses, okay? up on the, on the mountain. And sometimes God wrote with his own finger the, the ten words, the ten commandments, he said. So there are times where he will dictate. But he's talking about generally, this is the case. God, he's not talking about dictating material when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration. Number two, he says, God used human authors and their own individual styles, as you saw in my definition. And number three, he says, nevertheless, the product was in its original manuscripts without ever. So all these definitions, including my own, presented in this, uh, in this uh, the last 45 minutes, speak of both God's action by a spirit in the human author and of the nature of the resulting text. Let me repeat that. The definitions of inspiration that I presented to you, including my own, speak both of God's action by his spirit in the human author and of the nature of the resulting text. So therefore, the scripture states in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Indeed, prophecy never had its origin in the mind, in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You, can hold your, uh, you don't have to hold your place in 2 Timothy. Go over to, I want to show it to you in your Bibles. Go to 2 Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start there. Simon Peter, 2 Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant of, of, of an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, it's a little interjection about 1 Peter. 
Second uh, Peter. This is last, his last epistle to the, the church as well. And it was for Jewish Christians, like First Peter. Then it says in verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for, day, for, God, for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome, rewards of the Bemacy, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, verse 12, I will always remind you of these things. He repeated things. Good pastor does so. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of, his, of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. His death was imminent. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So we have two books. Second Timothy, last words of Paul to Timothy, ready to get executed by Nero. Peter's the same way, ready to be executed by Nero. Verse 15, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. What? The word of God that he taught him. Bible doctrine. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's, Christianity is different from the religions of the world because it has evidence and eyewitness testimony to it. It's a religion based in history. No other religion is based in history that we can affirm or confirm with historical documents like the Bible. Think about that. Then he says in verse 17, He, the Lord, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory of the Father, saying, This is my Son, in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He heard it. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We've also had the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, obey it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The communication of the word of God is light in the midst of the darkness of Satan's cosmic system. Let me repeat, the communication of Bible doctrine, the word of God, is a shining light in the darkness of this cosmic system that we live in. Then Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as I said before, those definitions I gave you of inspiration speak both of God's action by his spirit and the human author and of the nature of the resulting text. So therefore the scripture says, as we just read, that prophecy never had its origin in, human, in the human will, but prophets, 
though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So furthermore, people, the scriptures teach that not only are the human authors of scripture carried along by the Holy Spirit, but the resulting scripture, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed. And notice that in these passages, teach that it's scripture that is so described, not the human author. If we choose to use the word inspired instead of God-breathed, then we can say that it is the text that is inspired, not the human authors. Now, if we use the term inspire to the fact that the human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, then the authors of Scripture were in fact inspired. Therefore, our definition of inspiration is designed to capture both the work of the Holy Spirit through the human author and the resulting status of the text of Scripture. And it's important, people, to understand that there is nothing in this definition that requires a particular mode of inspiration. The scriptures reveal that inspiration may operate through a vision. We can see that from scripture. A trance-like dream, hearing voices. But we must also keep in mind that there is nothing in the definition that requires such phenomena. In fact, the scriptures also reveal that it's not clear that all of the biblical writers were always self-consciously aware of what they were writing with canonical scripture. They weren't always, we weren't always understanding that what they were writing about. Daniel, read the end of Daniel. He didn't understand what he got. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel, he, the, the, the words of these, this prophecy have been sealed. Well, they've been opened since the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay, So you and I have it. He, back in his day, when he got it, I don't, I don't know what this means. In fact, you see Daniel, when he gets revelation from God in the book of Daniel, he's collapsed on the ground. He's exhausted. An angel has to strengthen him because of what he heard. He was overwhelmed by it. So, as we close, a couple of points here. So the term inspiration is really not, more, not much more than a convenient label to attach to the process whereby God has brought about the existence of the scriptures. Verbal revelation and historical witness words of human beings and words of God, the truth that God chose to communicate in the particular forms of individual human authors. A man named Enns, a great scholar, he says the following. We can put it up on the board for you. He says there are several important elements that belong in a proper definition of inspiration. One, the divine element, God the Holy Spirit superintended the writers, ensuring the accuracy of the writing. Number two, the human element, Human authors wrote according to their individual styles and personalities, as we pointed out in my definition. Number three, the result of the divine human authorship is the recording of God's truth without error. And then in number four and five, he gives this. Inspiration extends to the selection of words by the writers. Number five, inspiration relates to the original manuscripts. So God is able to communicate through the human authors of Scripture everything he wants to communicate to. In fact, he prepares the men of Scripture to, to receive this revelation from him and so they can communicate it in the language that they, in, in their own, with their own vocabulary and literary style and, it still be, and it's still from God, the Holy Spirit. So because God can use, because he's the creator of the tongue and language, he doesn't matter what literary style you use. He can still get it across. So let's say, for instance, he wanted to use, you know, um, 
Bert to communicate scripture and inspire him, or, or any of his. He, he, what he could do, he could. He, Bert doesn't change his vocabulary style, his, his likes, dislikes. God's able to communicate what he wants through Bert without, with perfect accuracy, if he was an author, if he, if he was a human author of scripture. And he doesn't, and, he, and they're not even, and they're not even conscious. Okay, I gotta write. I'm writing scripture here. Sometimes they knew they would. They were conscious of that, and a lot of times they did. So very important that we understand that. So again, I just want to look, just go all the way back here to um, the definition I gave you, and I want to close with this. Of course. God the Holy Spirit, I'll do it by whatever. God the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of inspiration contends. God the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally guided the human authors of Scripture, but without changing their literary style, destroying their personality, uh, their likes and dislikes, God's complete and connected thought to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original language of Scripture, and thus this Bible bears the authority of God. We're now accountable. We need to respond to this in faith and obedience because the Bible bears God's authority. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson will be a blessing to your people and help us understand the nature of Scripture and how marvelous it is that we have these Bibles in front of us, the, the, your words to us by the Spirit, communicating your full counsel to us. And we just thank you and praise you for the Bible we have in front of us, these English translations the product of the hard work of many scholars. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, I'm going to sing us a song, right, that's right. <laughs> Daydreaming. You guys still sitting there. We'll do this one. This is one I wrote not too long ago. It's, it's a rocker. You might, get, you might fall out of your chairs after you hear it. So. Oh, look out. <laughs> but I like it because it's fun to play and sing.
dismissed.